The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, you do. You sound like you've just woken up in the morning or you've got a cold. Which one is it? I that? have a cold. Okay. <laughs> yes, so he's a little congested, everybody. So bear with us. This is what happens in the summer months of South Africa, the winter months for us. So I uh, hope you feel better soon, Kobus. Uh, today, you. we're going to be talking about corruption. And this is a topic we haven't addressed on the show for almost a year now. And the last major incident or high-profile case of corruption was that of Sam Pa. And that was one that was covered by the Financial Times' Tom Burgess, who did a lot of great reporting on this. And Sam Pa, if you recall, was one of these notorious figures who was apparently, and again, so little is actually known on the record, was just greasing the wheels for these big deals in places like Zimbabwe, Angola, and other places. And he got wrapped up in Xi Jinping's, that's the president of China's, anti-corruption campaign. And apparently Sam Pa, from what I understand, is still sitting in a Chinese jail somewhere. So he wasn't really brought down by his African corruption. He may have been brought down by his alleged Chinese corruption. But it did bring this sense that something is not always right with a lot of the Chinese deals. And the Chinese don't always have the best reputation when it comes to transparency and corruption. And corruption, of course, is a huge problem at home in China and certainly one that also exists in Africa. And Kobus, when Chinese actors behave illicitly, illegally, and kind of engage in corrupt practices, it seems like they're in very fertile territory in Africa. Corruption is a massive problem in Africa. And there's been research saying that Africa loses roughly about $50 billion a year in illicit financial flows, which is, you know, the kind of UN way of talking about corruption. Africa has been putting this front and central. So, for example, they've been really pushing it in the G20. And they've been really trying to get enforcement and surveys done and, and studies to see where most of it is happening, where the money goes, which banks are involved. But, you know, Africa is still such a relatively kind of chaotic system that it's very, very difficult to keep track of corruption, especially because the people involved, they keep themselves so hidden. So it caught our attention last week when Jenny Marsh, who's a senior producer at CNN International based in Hong Kong, uh, published an article called How a Hong Kong Millionaire's Bribery Case Exposes China's Corruption Problem in Africa. We thought this would be a great time to revisit the issue of Chinese corruption in Africa and particularly about this case related to Patrick Ho. So, Jenny, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, Kobus and Eric. Thanks for having me. So, Jenny, you talk about Patrick Ho. Uh, this is a name that may not be familiar to a lot of people, but he's really well known to both U.S. law enforcement authorities, presumably Chinese law enforcement authorities, and even at the U.N. Why don't you just set up your story a little bit and tell us who exactly is Patrick Ho and why is he important? Okay, so Patrick Ho was sort of quite a prominent politician in Hong Kong during the early noughties. He served as the Hong Kong Home Affairs Secretary 
And after he left the Hong Kong government, he kind of graduated into working for this NGO, which operated out of the UN and kind of was fully funded by a Chinese energy company. And then last November, he was arrested in New York on multiple corruption and bribery charges, money laundering. And what was interesting about this case was he was arrested in New York, but he was accused by US prosecutors of bribing African officials for business opportunities for the company his NGO was funded by in Africa. But the case was going to be prosecuted in Manhattan. And the prosecutors alleged that Ho had kind of been leveraging the contacts he'd made at the UN in order to make these deals on behalf of this company. And which African countries were involved? So the ones uh, cited by the US government, were, it was Chad and Uganda. And, I, you know, I, I remember that in the past, we, on, on the podcast, we discussed the issue around fines given to Chinese companies in Chad. In your story, you connect from that kind of incident to the Patrick Howe case. Like, what is the connection? So the connection is that Ho allegedly has a fixer who helps him kind of set up these deals, who is a guy called uh, Jake Gaddio. hope I'm saying that right. And he initially approaches Gaddio for help approaching the president of Chad on behalf, not of the company which funds his NGO, but a different uh, state-owned Chinese oil company, which has been fined in Chad for environmental kind of misdemeanors. And the company that funds Ho's NGO is hoping to go into a joint venture with this other company in Chad. But before it does that, it needs for this uh, issue that the company is facing in Chad to be resolved. Um, so Ho is basically lobbying to speak to the president of Chad to try and kind of smooth the way over for this Chinese company, which has been fined $1.2 billion. Your article's title, How a Hong Kong Millionaire's Bribery Case Exposes China's Corruption Problem in Africa, that really caught my attention because it really wasn't about Patrick Ho. The headline is about China's corruption problem in Africa. And I want to kind of get a sense from you. Did you write the headline? Because a lot of times in the in the editing process, sub-editors write headlines and change it from what the journalist did. Or was that your intended headline? No, that, I was happy with that headline. It was the headline that I had seen before it was published. I guess for me, it's that there was one key example, which is the Patrick Ho case. And no one denies that there's corruption in Africa and certainly the Chinese businesses. But it does feel extraordinarily broad considering that there are tens of thousands of Chinese businesses that are operating in Africa today, many of them small enterprises, and that we're painting a broad brush. Do you, in your reporting, did you come away with the idea that this is an endemic problem, China's corruption problem in Africa, or is this more focused on certain segments and sectors and businesses? And that was what's hard for me to kind of get to differentiate. So I think it's really important to say, and I think the point is made in the piece, that we're in no way saying that all Chinese companies and actors operating in African countries are corrupt. And we're certainly not saying that no American or European companies and actors are corrupt. Basically, you know, there are corrupt Europeans and Americans and there are Chinese companies which are not corrupt for sure. But I think there was this for a long time, people have talked about the problem of Chinese corruption in Africa, but it has not been well studied formally. And when I spoke to people, multiple experts, you know, most of them confirmed this is a problem they're aware of and have even experienced, maybe I've undertaken their own research in the field. But it was something very few people are willing to talk about on record and definitely didn't want to study. Why was that? 
Why, why are so few people willing to talk about it on record? So I found that really interesting because people are willing to talk on record about the fact that China maybe isn't a particularly good friend to Africa and to criticise various financial packages and or, you know loans and how they're structured and things. But I think this was something slightly more serious. So if you're exposed to corruption, it's probably because you're in the field studying something and then you become, it happens in front of you almost sort of by accident. And then you don't feel comfortable writing that up or talking about it because you're probably going to have to betray the trust of somebody who you were studying or working with or a source. People felt that it could definitely limit their chances of getting access to China again afterwards. And Rob Precht, who heads up the Justice Labs in New York, he kind of confirmed the same thing. And he said so in a public speech in Hong Kong he made last month that he'd spoken during his time in Hong Kong to multiple people who all confirmed they know this to be a problem, but they're not willing to talk about it on record. And I, that was why I found this case so interesting, because suddenly you, you got this window into the case, one example of this, in an area which has been very murky previously, but people have talked about privately a lot. And the complaint the US government put forward, you know, if you believe that these emails the FBI has produced are legitimate, and if you believe the allegations against Ho, then it's incredible because, you know, I said in the piece, it reads like a how-to guide for bribing an African leader, and it really does. They wrote everything down so clearly. So I was really interested in looking at why it was all documented so clearly, what it meant in terms of the wider picture of Chinese corruption in Africa. And if you read the complaint, there are several points in it where other companies are mentioned, or one other company in particular is mentioned, other individuals are mentioned. And I think it's just very interesting. And I think it's important just to talk about it because so little has been written about this that it was important just to not just report this case straight down the line, but just to put it into context and say, well, what does this actually mean? What can we learn from this? You know, when Westerners talk about corruption, there's always this morality part of it that it implies that it's wrong. It's not right. You know, we have in the United States something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and that's something that you talked about in your article. And the idea is that you're not supposed to pay bribes to get things done in other countries, particularly to public officials. I lived in Vietnam for five years, um, one of the more corrupt countries in Asia, something that the Vietnamese government itself is trying to deal with. But the reality is that you can't get things done if you don't engage in this. It's pure and simple. The idea that some American company or British company is going to come into to Africa or to Vietnam or to any of these countries and not engage in any of this is ridiculous. The only companies that can do that are the largest companies that have such enormous market power that they can get away with it. But anybody in the kind of lower end of the large size down to medium and certainly in small has to engage in this. There's just no way around it if you want to get something done. And I just always laughed when I would deal with American companies who had these very strong mandates that say, we don't do anything related to corruption. We have the strongest kind of measures against corruption. And the companies that I worked for were paying commissions to people to get things done to these companies. <laughs> so, I mean, so whatever people say on the outside does not necessarily reflect what happens on the inside. And so I guess in some ways, my question is that, is the burden on the Chinese companies, the American companies, and, and the comparisons that you draw in your piece, that people were saying that there was a competitive advantage to Chinese companies because they don't have a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, 
the same way that the Americans do. Is the burden on the foreign company or is it on the host government or on the host country where corruption is either just the way that things get done, part of the culture, and just a reality that we have to confront? So I think that's an incredibly interesting point and I think something which is very, very complex. You talked about kind of lower to medium end corrupt practices kind of being unavoidable for smaller companies and smaller people. And, you know, my feeling is that the American government probably wouldn't pour the same kind of resources into prosecuting that kind of case as it would this type of case. So there's probably a pragmatism in how the law is applied, because for sure, I mean, if you're in a country which has a, you know, a terrible corruption rating, there must be a reality to doing business there, I can imagine. I mean, you would have to hope that the host country is the one to, you know, hold people to standards when they're operating in its territory, right? But that often isn't the case in some countries, you know, in Africa particularly. So then what happens? I think that the gripe that some US companies probably have and the US government might have is that if they are doing their best to try to keep their companies in line, you know, you can debate how successful they are at doing that. But if they are trying, maybe they feel it's pointless if then you have another big power such as China come in with lots and lots of money. And if, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a corrupt African leader and I can do a deal with someone who'll give me a couple of million dollars or I can do a deal with someone who won't, then it's probably going to be quite an easy choice for me. So, yeah, I, I think that's probably just the reality of the case and maybe one of the reasons the government is trying to prosecute this case. In your discussions with these experts, do you get a feeling that there's a specific Chinese mode of corruption that's different from from Western ways of, of being corrupt in Africa? Or is it essentially one playbook? And, you know, if you're corrupt, then you're corrupt in this one particular way. To be honest, I don't know if that's something I would feel too comfortable talking about. And I, I think it can just play out in, in lots of different ways. I mean, someone I spoke to honed in on the example of the illegal logging in Mozambique. And that's a different type of corruption or illegal practice altogether. I'm not particularly sure how much it matters, to be honest with you. Someone I spoke to did say that Chinese corruption is more conspicuous. And if the case against Ho is true, that would tie in with this particular case where uh, everything's very well documented. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So this question of the how conspicuous the corruption brings up an interesting comparison, again, keeping on this discussion between the West and China. And this isn't to necessarily defend the Chinese. This is just to try and put Chinese corruption in a different context, that the Chinese are new actors in places like Africa, whereas the British, the Americans, the French have been there for a long time. And there's in a sense in some corners, particularly in reaction to your article, that the corruption is so much more sophisticated and evolved on the part of Westerners, and the Chinese are really just bumbling around. Let me read you a comment that came from Kai Xue, who is a a longtime guest on our show, a follower show, and one of the smartest young guys out there on China's global relations. 
Uh, he took exception to your article, and your article did, by the way, spark quite a bit of discussion online, and particularly in a lot of our communities, uh, which I think as a journalist is always an exciting thing. Uh, some of it good, some of it not so good. Let me read you this comment, and I'd like to get your take on it. I found the recent CNN article to be naive and analytically simple, he says. The author seemed to think that the host story was sensational, but the most wildly sensational corruption in Africa involves British and American actors. Their sophistication is light years ahead of Chinese actors, and so is their ability to destabilize Africa. For example, Margaret Thatcher's son informing Blair's government beforehand and going ahead with sending 100 mercenaries to take over Equatorial Guinea for oil concessions. That was intercepted in Zimbabwe. Or Shell infiltrated every key ministry in Nigeria, according to State Department cables. I prefer the thinly sourced and worldly Le Monde articles, as he was talking about in relation to the accusations that China was spying on the African Union headquarters, to CNN's simple-minded recitation of court documents. So that's a little bit harsh, but I did want to kind of put that out there and get your response to that, again, to this level of sophistication between the Western type of corruption in Africa, which runs deep, and China's, or in this case, Hong Kong's. And is it a fair criticism that you might be overplaying this story? I think there's, there's two things here. I think, one, he's totally right. You know, there's no doubt that there are Western actors which are corrupt in Africa. And they probably had to get more sophisticated because their governments have initiated legislation to try to stop those kind of practices happening. I think the point this article was trying to make is that is China doing anything? You know, it kind of adopted this foreign bribery law to comply with the UN Convention Against Corruption in 2011, but it hasn't done a lot to enforce it. So Xi Jinping makes a big fuss about corruption at home. What's happening when Chinese companies are overseas? And overseas in countries where they're vulnerable because you know, they have these poor corruption ratings. And that was really the point of this piece, to look at, you know, what's the Chinese government doing to try to keep its, its companies in line when they're clearly in places where they're in a vulnerable position in terms of falling prey to corruption. So, yeah, I think he makes a good point, but I almost think they're two different things. How would you like to take this reporting forward? Like, if you if you were to do more reporting on Chinese corruption in Africa, which aspects would you like to explore? I would love to speak, not necessarily with more academics, but more people in industry who are on the ground in, in countries like this doing business, about their experiences of it, just to get more kind of empirical data. And I think it would be very, very difficult. That would be kind of what I would love to do. There was also a Voice of America article that reported in 2015, Obama had held this conference of African leaders in Washington and people had complained there that Beijing wasn't adhering to anti-corruption conventions. And I think it would be very interesting to speak to people who were at that meeting and find out exactly what was said. It wasn't, the reporting wasn't particularly fleshed out. But I think that was the point of this article was to start the conversation because I was quite surprised at, you know, how little had been really written about this, and also surprised how difficult it was to find people who were willing to go on record. The article is How a Hong Kong Millionaire's Bribery Case Exposes China's Corruption Problem in Africa. It was written by Jenny Marsh, a senior producer at CNN International in Hong Kong. Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time and to walk us through a little bit of what it went into to produce the story and kind of your take on it. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, and you do a lot of writing, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? They can follow me on Twitter. And what's your handle? 
My handle is at Jenny CNN. And that's J-E-N-N-I. At Jenny CNN. Excellent. J-E-N-N-I-C-N-N. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to following your reading and writing in the future. Thanks, guys. Kobus, the issue for me is, and it makes me feel uncomfortable here to talk about this issue because, I, and I don't want to take anything away from Jenny's reporting because on the one hand, I think it is important to talk about the issue of Chinese corruption in Africa the same way it's important to talk about Chinese corruption in China. And one of the great points that she makes is that I think this point that Xi Jinping is making a very big deal about Chinese corruption at home, but he isn't doing that much about Chinese corruption abroad. All the Chinese say is that they expect Chinese companies to obey local laws and regulations. That is pretty much what they do. They don't have anything meaningful like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That said, I contend that the Americans get away with murder because they are able to say, look, we've got the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but yet American corruption still runs rampant. And the fact is that the United States really doesn't enforce that much of the FCPA. It's the dumb and the slow that get caught on FCPA charges. And so I can understand why a lot of people felt sensitive to this story when you have a story produced by a Western media outlet, by a Western journalist that quotes Western sources, and the idea that there's a Chinese corruption problem in Africa, whereas there's a corruption problem in Africa that affects almost every major player, not just the Chinese. So that's not to take anything away from what she was saying, but at the same time, I can see where people are coming from in their criticism. I can also see it, but I tend to resist this kind of our team, their team kind of way of thinking. You know, lots of people should be reporting on these issues and some of them are going to be Western journalists working for Western outlets. So that should happen, I think. The issue for me is that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, a lot of innuendo about Chinese corruption in Africa. And you, you've, when you read China Africa work a lot, you, you frequently see this kind of wink-wink assumption that there was some kind of corruption happening without any real mapping or any real detailing of it. And this article, I think, was valuable in detailing some of it and detailing not, not only what the, the sums of money that changed hands, but exactly how it happened. Is there quite possibly a lot more French or an American and British corruption than Chinese corruption? Possibly. But at the same time, if there is Chinese corruption in Africa, then that needs to be uncovered as well. You know, Africa has a massive corruption problem and it needs to be tackled from a lot of different sides at once. Well, it does. But at the end of the day, I think we need to keep our expectations in check because as Jenny pointed out, nobody wanted to go on the record to talk about it. And, and it's a very, very sensitive issue because powerful people, powerful business interests are often involved. And when you start accusing people of being corrupt, you can make yourself vulnerable. So I don't really know how much we're ever really going to learn about this. You know, and that's why, yeah, to your point, there aren't teams. And it's not that Westerners can't talk about this or shouldn't talk about this. I think that's a fair point. I mean, that's a point that you and I, that criticism is brought up about you and I being who we are and what we do. And we always say it shouldn't be about us and our skin color or our nationalities or our point of view. It should be about the substance of what we're saying. That said, I just wish there was as much attention focused on Western corruption in places like Africa as there is about Chinese corruption. That being said, all of it is important. Final point from my point of view here is that when we talk about corruption, one of the things that I've noticed, and this is purely anecdotal, is that Chinese businesses often adapt to the environment that they're in. So a Chinese business operating in Japan or Sweden, Denmark, or even the United States to some extent, where 
corruption laws are enforced and the regulatory systems are quite high and sophisticated, governance levels are quite good, Chinese companies tend to behave well for the most part. And then in countries like the DR Congo, Chad, where governance isn't as strong, they adapt to that and oftentimes can get away with things, they do it. So there is this kind of adapting trend based on the levels of corruption of the individual countries. So again, I think it's important that we don't paint a broad brush across all Chinese businesses, because I don't know if that is actually fair or accurate. Yeah. And it's also, I think, important not to paint a broad brush across all of Africa and to be specific about, you know, about the specific problems that, that are involved. You know, different African countries are different. Some have extremely kind of chaotic situations that make this kind of corruption easier. Um, others don't. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very important, I think, to have African priorities be high, you know, on, on this discussion. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'd like to hear what you think. If you have comments, feedback, obviously this is an emotional issue. A lot of feedback came in when we originally posted the article on our various social media platforms. But now that we're discussing this is, do you agree with Jenny's assessment that this is an issue that needs to be talked about? Or do you actually feel that it really should be more about Western corruption and African corruption and the Chinese are just amateur bit players that are just the latest to come to the trough to feed off of it? We'd love to hear what you think. And we also want to give a shout out to all of our listeners on YouTube. YouTube. We have almost a thousand subscribers and we're doing really great traffic on YouTube. So if you are a YouTube listener, thank you so much. If you're not listening to us on YouTube and you find that YouTube is a great place to kind of follow podcasts and whatnot, then we highly recommend you check us out at youtube.com slash China Africa Project. It's, it's, our numbers on YouTube now are, are, are quite strong, two or 3,000 listens per show, which is really just fantastic for us. And we really are grateful to everybody listening and commenting and engaging in the discussion. Also, we're on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Android, all over the place. So if you're following wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. We always love to hear. You can write me directly at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. I always like to get your email and I try to respond within one or two days, but sometimes I get delayed. But definitely reach out to me and let me know if you have any feedback, if you'd like to hear any guests. Uh, and if you like or dislike what we say, we always welcome the feedback. So we'll be back again next week with another edition for the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.